0: Greetings, outcasts, free thinkers, narrative questioners, dot connectors, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever realm we exist in at the moment. You are about to embark on another free first-hour episode of The Melt. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For as little as three lousy Babylon Hokey Pokey tokens per month, you can have access to full-length, early, and exclusive episodes. Just visit patreon.com slash themeltpodcast or click the link in the episode notes to set the process in motion. It's simple, painless, and very well might make you feel tingly inside. So without further ado, please enjoy the show! <laughs>
1: fifty two at Organon, Rangeley May I, right Reich, am sitting alone in the large room in the lower house. All people are gone. In the morning and the whole day yesterday, a meeting took place of the members of the board of the board of trustees of the foundation which carries my name everybody's gone now and i would like to add a few words to the recording we made yesterday and today of the disaster which struck over There's nobody here to listen to what I'm saying. The recording apparatus is the only witness. I hope that someone will, at some time in the future, listen to this recording with great respect. Respect for the courage that was necessary to sustain the research work in organ energy and life energy all through these years. I shall not go into the great strain, into the details, into the worries, the sleepless nights, the tears expenditures and money and effort the patience which I have to have with all my workers and with all my students <clears throat> I would like only to mention the fact that there's nobody around there's not a single soul either here at Orgona or down in New York who would fully and really from the bottom of his existence understand what I'm doing and be with me in what I'm doing.
0: Throughout history, many have made discoveries that would have improved our relationship with our surroundings, our realm's resources, and set our collective trajectory in a completely different direction. Through the suppression of certain inventions, the powers that were attempt to manufacture scarcity and commodify things that are rightfully ours by birth. They attempt to monetize kindness and cooperation whilst controlling the supply chains to encourage competition and selfishness. This realm has more than enough for all of us, yet we are led to believe that there is only so much to go around and that which is available can only be acquired by jumping through the prescribed hoops and producing the correct amount of Babylon Hokey Pokey tokens. There have been those courageous, forward-thinking individuals who have strived to extricate themselves and us from this mental matrix by helping us to access and uncover frequencies and energies that are natural parts of this realm and which could be utilized to provide us with the abundance that is rightfully ours. One of these courageous individuals was Wilhelm Reich, born in a small village in what is now the Ukraine, and he was best known for his discovery of orgone energy. He believed that sexual gratification could alleviate neurotic symptoms, successfully treated cancer with bion injections, and was able to change the weather and attract UFOs with the cloud-busting machine that he invented. He was later subjected to a defamation campaign by the FDA, which ended up with Reich incarcerated in the Danbury Federal Penitentiary, where he died of heart failure. Joining us today is one Ryan Peverly, who is not only a fellow podcaster, you may know him from his past podcasts, A Culture and Lieber, Ohio, but he has just written a screenplay based on Wilhelm Reich's life with the working title Ether, God, and Devil. I start off the conversation by asking Ryan to give us a little background about how he got to where he is today.
2: I'm not really anyone of interest. I, I used to host a podcast oh. that was <laughs> I used to host a podcast that was relatively uh, successful in the sort of niche niche genre that it was operating in. Uh, it was called old culture for a long time. And then I sort of got out of that um, recently and uh, have transitioned more into the next part of my life, which is uh, screenwriting and uh, creative projects of, of different sorts. And um, yeah, you know, that's that's sort of the the gist of my background. And if you want to go even further than that, you know, I have... Yeah, let's do it. Sure. Okay. Well, uh I mean, how far back do we me to go? Like uh, uh, born, zygote uh, whatever, but zygote. Sorry, go ahead. Zygote. I <laughs> I was fertilized in <laughs> probably mid-February 1983. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um I I sort of like glimpsed the first ray of light in this realm on November 7th, 1983. But Nice. Um I think that yeah, I'm on board with my origin story actually beginning nine months or so prior to that okay which is funny because i you know i was born in november 83 and if i go back nine months that literally is like early to mid-february so i assume i was a valentine's day ish fertilization yeah yeah. and uh but yeah no let's just skip all that that's that's kind of the (laughs) the boring stuff but you know i've i've got a diverse background in a lot of, of things Mostly writing, you know, um, I started my career in journalism and worked in journalism for about five years and then and then transitioned because journalism doesn't pay a lot of money yes. um, into more of like the marketing and communications and advertising space. And I was there for probably close to 10 years um, doing various gigs and roles and whatnot. And just, man, as if you guys know, if you've worked in marketing or know people who work in marketing... Uh, at some point, it becomes uh, just a little too much to handle if you're a truly creative sort of, you know, soul at heart. And at some point for me, it it was just I, I had had enough and I walked away from a full time job almost a year ago. It was April 1st of 2022. I turned in my two weeks notice and it was a Friday and everybody thought at the office I was, you know, pulling a prank or something because it was April Fool's Day. And I was like, nope, no, no, I, I'm, I, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. And it coincided with, that was the, the same week that I had finished writing this script about Wilhelm Reich, uh, which we may touch on here. Oh, yeah. And um, and so it, it was a very, you know, it was springtime. And I just thought, you know, there were, I think a lot of things happening astrologically, too, that I thought this was a, a good time to sort of plant some seeds, so to speak, in my life. And really work with the energy that was present, um, not just in my chart, but then, you know, also kind of just what was happening in, you know, reality at large as well. Well, however you make the, you know, whatever you think of that term and yeah, yeah. what that means to you. But, um, and so over the last, like, you know, 10 months or so, nine months, I've just been writing and, uh, I, I did a few podcast episodes I think here and there over the last year and a half, but I've really just sort of packed up and moved on from that part of my life. And I'm focusing more now on what, what's the next phase, you know? And, um, I think uh, that what I'm seeing now in terms of the those seeds that were planted are actually being harvested now, which I think is kind of fun and 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 cool to see that it's kind of funny. Like if you just sort of start acting like something, you eventually become that thing. Yeah, you know? Yeah. And
0: fake it till you make it.
2: Sure. Yeah. Sure. So so I'm doing a lot of faking right now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, it seems to be working. It seems like your the screenplay or the script is. You know, there's been some interest in it, right?
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, if you guys want to start there, I um...
0: Well, actually, really quickly, before we go into that, I personally would like to know what brought you to do your first podcast, A Culture. What was it that brought you to want to uh, talk about those experiences and that, that research with people in the first place, which is, you know, a step to where you're at right now?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Like I, I wouldn't have found Wilhelm Reich if I had not went through that process of really, it was a process of self-discovery. You know, I had, um, I had just gotten out of a relationship and it was a, a kind of a traumatic experience for me. And so the fallout from that was, you know, really have a, like heavy psychologically and emotionally for me. And I, I just found myself in that space where I didn't—I didn't really know who I was, you know—and I realized I had no real direction in my life and no foundation of any sort that I had ever built for myself, um, materially and also spiritually. And so, naturally, that—that that sort of leads you—well, it led me, you know, I like sort of into this area of, you know, uh, just a, what you would call shadow work, right? Mm, yeah, of just sure. really ex- exploring yourself. Mm-hmm and who you are and what makes you you and and then also what's holding you back and you know what what your struggles are what your vices are what your bad habits and your addictions are that you really need to sort through before you can come out you know i guess fully formed or better formed on the other end and shortly after i i had sat with myself for probably close to a year before i started the podcast but that year of, you know, post breakup and trying to really learn who I was led me down some really interesting paths. You know, I, I got really into conspiracy theory, as you might expect, where I'm <laughs> yes. questioning everything around me. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And, yeah. and of course, you know, conspiracy always leads you to spiritual in some sense, at least I think it does. And uh, that's sort of what led to the launch of of that project. And, uh, you know, just got really, really fascinated by Subjects like alchemy, specifically astrology, magic, you know, that's sort of the tent pole of the occult, really. And then use that as a vehicle to not just talk to interesting people about interesting ideas and, you know, work that they were doing, but also to really continue to learn more about myself through those conversations and develop a, a better sense of not just spirituality for myself, but also morality, because I grew up with... No spiritual foundation, which I think also means you grew up with no moral foundation either. And so, what, what I realized was that, you know, uh, the thing that was holding me back the whole time was obviously me. And I had nothing to really ground myself in experientially, um, lifestyle wise, you know, belief wise to really, uh, I guess, fall back on when I did fall onto hard times. You know, right. it was always. Instead of sinking into like a, a you know, a, a strong moral fabric that I would build for myself, I sunk into, you know, substances and, and sex and these things that are very easy to sort of, you know, I guess, put band-aids over or wh- whatever it is that's bothering you, right? And and that's, you know, that process was um, really eye-opening in terms of, you know, just finding out more about, uh, you know, just the nature of reality, I guess you would call it. and how this thing works that wherever we are whatever we're doing here like there's a specific way that it works and i don't have it figured out yet but i think i know it a little bit better than i did you know seven eight years ago and so that that just all of that sort of bled into that project and you know some people enjoyed it um i did really great feedback on it over the years and people are still listening to the episodes even though i haven't really done one like a proper one for a long time now and um, it's, it's, I'm really grateful to have, you know, discovered that path for myself and come out the other side of it as a man, like a capital M man, you know, like I've, I've never been a man before. It's a really interesting feeling, you know, and I'm not saying that I'm fully formed now, but I think that I am, I am more of that than I was previously. Sure. And, and there's a lot of things that go into what that means. And we don't, you know, if you want to go down that path, we can, but you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that, um, I was never taught how to be a man, I had to teach myself how to be a man. And I, I think that's actually better to do it on your own terms. You don't have any preconceived ideas of, of what that means, and what masculinity really means, what divine masculinity really means. And I think it was just learning all of those things that I was picking up along the way. And sort of like Legos, and like just building things for myself that I yeah. never had before. Sure. And here we are. I guess
0: yeah. so. Yeah, if you don't have anything to base it on, it's kind of like starting from ground zero. You have to create it yourself, which means mm-hmm. that you're going to craft it from your own experiences, which I think is probably the best place to start with something like that.
2: I yeah, I would I would agree and uh that's where I started and I'm I'm probably still there in some sense. I still I still feel like a lot of times or days I'm on training wheels with everything, but Hell yes. Yeah, it's it's like you 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 know, one step forward, 700 steps back some days, you know? <laughs> it's it's never perfect, it's never easy, and you're always challenged. And I think that's what I've learned too is that when you really invest into something, whether it's a hobby, an interest, you know, something academic, like whatever it is that you're investing in, you will eventually be challenged by that thing. For sure. And if you invest into yourself, you will be challenged by yourself, mm-hmm. you know, in in some form or fashion and you know, I got really into the law recently and I've been challenged by the law recently. And and maybe we could touch on that later. But oh, absolutely. it's it's one of those things where, I, you know, you start to take these things really seriously and put a lot of time and energy into them and they will come back. You know, they will come back and they will test. How much do you really think you know about this? You know, if you spend all this time messing around in these books and on these podcasts with these ideas and you really start to implement them into your life, you know, practically you you're gonna get tested by them. For sure. And that's kind of the beauty of it. It's also the pain of it too, you know. Mm-hmm. Like it, it sucks to go through some of the stuff that you know that that challenges you to that level, but it's also, you know, it's iron sharpening iron, right?
0: Absolutely. That's how you are tempered. Being For tested sure. by the actual experience itself. Um, so am I would it be right to assume that Wilhelm Reich got on your radar via a culture?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I never really did an episode about him, but he was obviously one of the figures that when you really start to delve into science and specifically alternative science, that his name eventually pops up. You know, he's he's one of the more, I think, misunderstood people that you could come across in that space. And he's also one of the most controversial that you could come across in that space which is odd because he seems to be the only figure that's as controversial in the alternative media as he is in the mainstream media which lends me to, or leads me to believe that there's something to what he's doing that has some truth behind it For right? Sure. and yeah so i absolutely came across his work you know during that process and have, you know, sort of parlayed that really, you know, armchair sort of interest in his work and his his life story into a really, you know, I guess a denser, maybe more robust comprehension of of what he was trying to do. I can't say I know for sure what he was trying to do, because I don't even think Reich knew what he was trying to do half the time, but he, he essentially was, you know, uh, I, I don't know how much you, you want to go into his work specifically,
0: well, but... We, we haven't covered it much in the show so if you feel like you want to dip into it then please feel free to
2: sure yeah i mean and you know hunter i know that you're studying psychology right now i don't know where in that journey you are but you know reich was i would consider him uh, the the star pupil of sigmund freud mm. and you know freud had um a lot of students obviously mm-hmm. and but i think reich was the first the first one where they formed a a a father-son type of bond, you know, and it was really evident in his writings about Freud that he viewed him that way. And when he, he actually, he went to Vienna to go to law school and changed his major from law to pre-med and was in medical school. And it was during that time in medical school that he he became really disheartened and disenchanted with the way that medicine was being taught, even back then. This is the you know, early 1920s, post-World War I, where he's going to Vienna to to go to school, and he, um, he and a couple other med students had really just formed this idea that, you know, medicine was too sort of reductive for their tastes, and there was nothing in the curriculum about human sexuality, and what they call back then sexology, and this is what led him to Freud, because Freud was not only doing psychoanalysis, but he was talking a lot about libido at the time. And this was informing his work. And he was giving lectures all around Vienna. Um, and and Reich and his friends just went to a lecture one night and he was captivated by Freud's, uh, you know, the the content of his lecture, which led to them becoming, I would say friends even more than than they were colleagues because they took to each other right away. And, and so Reich's, Everything that Reich did was grounded in that initial sort of period of his that was Freudian, that was psychoanalysis. And he really just formed one idea or one theory that led him through every subsequent part of his life, professionally speaking. You know, he was, it's funny, a guy in my writer's group who read the script about Reich that I wrote had never heard of Reich. And he was like, this guy's like the Einstein of the orgasm. And so I've, I've been stealing that and using that as a way to describe him to people who aren't familiar with his work, just Uh to, to one, to to portray what it was that was really driving his interest, which was the orgasm and and sort of sexual energy. And we can talk about that if you'd like, but also that to be the Einstein of it meant that he, what he really was the pioneer in this space and does not get the credit that he deserves for that. And so when I discovered that story, and I talk in tangents sometimes, as you know, so Please try to keep me on track if I venture too far off. No. Go. But but when I discovered that story, you know, it, it resonated with me as as important because of my own life and my own struggles with not, not really sexual identity, but but sexual urges and desires and addictions. And so I really wanted to learn more about that part of myself, which is why I dug into his work. And so to call him the Einstein of the orgasm, what what I'm really saying is that he he formulates this theory early in his career, probably about 1924-ish, where he comes up with this idea that it's called the function of the orgasm. And what he's really saying is that in the way that Freud talked about libido, you know, driving everybody to their behaviors, this hunger that, that you know, that you can't really quench all the, or this thirst that you can't really quench all the time that builds up inside of you. Mm-hmm. Reich took that further and said, well, if Freud's saying that, that this leads to some sort of neurosis, which Freud was saying, that if this pent up energy led to sort of mental health issues, Reich said, then all we really need to do is dissipate that energy somehow. And so he came around to the idea of the orgasm as a way to do that. And what Reich means by orgasm, by the way, is not, not ejaculation, right? Not sort of um, <laughs> releasing fluid, so to speak. He was more about the experience of a full body convulsion, all right, which would loosen the musculature and be able to um, dissipate that pent up energy and the way that most people get to that is through sexual excitation and so but it doesn't mean that you're having you know like an ejaculatory experience necessarily most people probably would if if they got to that point but what he was really concerned with was getting people to the point where they would have full body convulsions so that they would loosen what he called character armor that had built up and sort of armored them against reality right where they're sort of holding back all of their emotion and their energy and not able to express it properly. And so this one theory, this one idea that he came up with early in his career, you know, after probably a couple few years of hanging out with Freud, propelled him through the next, like, 30 plus years of his life. And he followed this into, you know, five or six different areas of science that the further he gets down that path, the more controversial he becomes, which is odd to me because... In an era where everybody, you know, wants you to trust the science, what Reich was doing was actually trusting science. And he was, he just followed his one hypothesis to a logical conclusion. He never got there because he died in prison before he could really, you know, put the period on all of his work. But he really was doing the scientific method by taking one initial hypothesis and following it wherever it took him. And it took him into some really You know, sort of weird areas that we could talk about as well, but well, weird to maybe the layman, not weird to you know people like us and people who are listening to us. Uh But you know, when you start talking about etheric energy, orgone energy, you start talking about the cloud buster and what he was doing with that. You know, like this is a lot for the layman to sort of wrap their head around. I I I joke about you know, if if my mom or dad saw a cloud buster and the way that he built it they would think it was some device out of a science fiction film. Yeah. yeah. It it looks very Mm sci-fi, you know? And, and so it's trying, but it's trying to, you know, like to comprehend what led him to that point. And it was just one idea, this one kernel of an idea about the orgasm that he followed through to the end of his life. And, you know, when I looked at the story holistically like that, which I, I didn't, I didn't know that I didn't understand that when, before I started researching him more to write about him. And when I picked up on the fact that he was essentially following one idea all the way through his entire life, it, it became such a fascinating story to me because what kind of scientist do you know these days that actually does that? Because yeah. that to me is the scientific method, exactly. you form a hypothesis, you follow it through to the logical conclusion. Yes. It just, he just did it for 35 years. You know?
3: So, did he and, write a book but, about the function of the orgasm? Was that uh, something that came out in a journal? How did how was that written?
2: Yeah, he actually. The book is called "The Function of the Orgasm." It came out in 1927, and I think the English. Well, sorry, that was the translated German title. It was actually published in English under the title "Genitality in the Theory and Therapy of Neurosis." Now, you would find it today under the title, The Function of the Orgasm. But that, that was published in 1927. And it was met with pretty much critical acclaim from the psychoanalytical crowd. Um, you know, Freud, Freud famously was gifted a copy after Reich finished writing it. And it was a really thick manuscript. And he hands it to Freud at Freud's 70th birthday party. And, he, and, and Freud just looks at it and he goes, that thick? And it was kind of insulting, you know, that he's like, why would you write this much about the orgasm? And then Freud gave it an endorsement, you know, like a few months later when it was more formally published, but it was actually kind of the beginning of the end of their relationship. If you really want to trace back those details, but um, he did write that. And it was published and it became, like I said, pretty groundbreaking at the time uh, because no, nobody had published any sort of, you know, literature like this before.
0: Didn't he, didn't he mean, Let's try and get the words out. Didn't he say or didn't he think or postulate that fascism was rooted in sexual repression?
2: He did. Yeah. He. Um, so that was a, one of the more interesting parts of his life is, and this is what leads to the fallout with Freud actually is he continues to follow this into what he called sexual politics. And this is where he combines um, he actually becomes a communist for a short period of time, or at, at least he has support from the Communist Party, but he really gets into the the teachings of Marx and Frederick Engels. And he's looking at how, you know, the sort of working class being suppressed and repressed um, sort of leads to the same sort of neurosis. And because of that, that breeds this idea of fascism. And it's not necessarily the sort of ruling class that's embodying this it's their they're more like a reflection of this in the working class because the working class is so pent up you know with this sexual energy and so the working class themselves become fascists and so their leaders then take on that same sort of persona they wear that same sort of mask if you will and and so that was something that he uh worked a lot in in the sort of later 1920s and early 1930s up until he's kind of fled Uh, berlin because the nazis were were taking over and he was he was a he was a hungarian-born jew and 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 so he he was going to be persecuted not just for his work but for his ethnic background as well and so he had to get out of town but the whole thing about you know fascism and he wrote a book about that too called the mass psychology of fascism Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which was about this very topic you know like about how this sexual repression leads to a more sort of fascistic way of seeing the world. And because the working class sort of embodies that because of their repression, the leadership sort of mimics that, you know, he he I don't think he would say that in quite the same terms. And by the way, all this stuff that I'm talking about, you know, I, I have my own interpretation of Reich's work, which is where a lot of what I'm talking about comes from. You know, you you can look up the actual details and such of of what he said about, you know, specific things. But the interpretation of this is, you know, when I read his work is this, this is where I'm coming from is this mass psychology of fascism is, is more like a projection of from the working class onto their leaders. And then it's kind of like, if, if you take an honest person and you continually call them a liar, they'll probably turn into a liar at some point, you know, they kind of take on that persona. And that's kind of what I think what he was getting at was this sort of uh, crowd psychology, right. That, breeds this sort of like fascist worldview, then it gets projected onto the canvas of reality. And then so your leaders step in and they play the role that you've assigned to them almost sort of psychologically, which I think is an interesting way to view politics all throughout history, especially you know, the last several years that we've lived through, especially here uh, in America. You, know, you can see Trump being a, like a reflection of specific types of people, you know, and Biden being a reflection of specific types of people um, and I always view like whoever's in office presidentially as a sort of kind of a snapshot of where we are collectively psychologically, you know, and maybe that's naive of me to think that way. But I, I think Reich was sort of dancing around the same idea is like, you kind of, you kind of get the leader that you deserve, you know, based <laughs> on where you're at so, uh, psychologically speaking. So
3: I, I would I would think that it's kind of a top down thing from my perspective, mm-hmm. because if you look at like... Economic status and the number of children people have. It's usually people, and this is anecdotal, of course, that come from lower uh, economic status that have more children. And people from a higher economic status have less children. So, I don't know that I necessarily agree with this idea of repression in this uh, working class. It seems to be kind of the opposite of that, that the repression is coming from the predatorial class or the elite class, and it's really about controlling people and their Mm -hmm. behavior. Uh, So I don't know. I just wanted to throw that in as as maybe a different perspective.
2: No, no, no. And I would agree with that. Like, I think on the surface, um, that is something that is, is true to an extent. I, I would, I wonder if, if the sort of what we call the ruling class or the elite or whoever, I wonder how sexually repressed they really are, you yeah, know, because if exactly. some of the stories that I've heard are true and, you know, stories that you've heard is that they have quite an interesting sex life, you know, where right. they might not have this sort of pent up sexual energy. I, I do think, and maybe we have to draw a specific line in terms of, you know, historical markers as to where that because both can be true right Right, like there could be a version of that that reich was working with Mm -hmm. that he sees in the working class that is not necessarily reflected in the elite class because he was running in these circles freud was he was also a jew obviously but he was in a very sort of elite you know aristocratic type of, of of group in vienna at that time and so you know and i'm not saying that uh you know that that there's that only one of these can be true. I guess I'm saying that maybe at some point that did shift, right? That that did shift and, and the, the sort of ruling class became more repressed or use used the sort of, uh you know, the idea of, of sex as taboo, right? To sort right. of enslave the working class further, which I, right. I, I think that there's there's absolutely evidence of that, right? Like we, um, you know, Reich's whole point, was not whole point, but, you know, part of this point was that a sexually liberated person is, is not easy to control, right? right? You, you cannot keep somebody who's truly liberated in states or constant states of fear and paranoia, Right. right? They will eventually rise up and, and overcome, you know, so...
3: And maybe some of that shift shift happened when we went from an agrarian culture to more of an urbanized culture, because Mm -hmm. you had people who were having 10 to 15 children who were working on a farm, and that doesn't necessarily mean that the female was enjoying those sexual encounters and having orgasms she was maybe breeding or procreating um, but not for the with the intention of sexual pleasure that could have been an adjunct but maybe not necessarily the driving force of that and when you move into a, a more urbanized culture where you have people that are working in factories, that shifts the energy where you don't necessarily have 10 and 12 children to support living in a tiny apartment, for an example. You know, you're not living on a farm, now you're living in an apartment in a city. So that could have been part of that pivotal shift. And I think when we're talking about like the predatorial aspect of, of um, these I just hate, I abhor the term elite because I don't find these people elite. I find them predators. Mm -hmm. Uh, From my perspective, I think they do have very varied sexual um, interactions and sex lives. But the repression is that it's not public. Mm-hmm. So they're not, you know, they, they're having orgies, they're having these sex parties, but it's not something that you're going to see on Instagram, <laughs> for example.
2: Well, unless you're buying like Chet Hanks or somebody, right? Like <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, whoever. Uh, no, but I would agree with that, you know, and I think, I think the urbanization of, of things definitely, I mean, that, that shifted a lot of things about, you know, the sort of human story, right? Or, or, the, or the story of man. I, I don't like that term human anymore for reasons that you guys know. Yes. <laughs> but um, no, I, I, I would agree with that. And, and I would say that there is definitely some sort of shift that happens in this repression, right? That that while the working class may have been repressed at some point, in whatever way, that these propagandists, right? these These predators, as you call them, learned more about this. And it was probably through work of guys like reich who were Mm -hmm. extremely intelligent and brilliant thinkers and it's it's taking you know it's taking research like that and applying it you know like experientially or experimentally to the working class and once they figure out that that sex has this or sexual energy you know it's not say sex like that's too general but sexual energy has this really really you know sort of powerful um hold an impact on you as a man or a woman and if you can harness that and use it against somebody by making it either taboo to talk about making it shameful to talk about you know you're really starting the you're planting those seeds of repression and repressed energy in the body specifically
3: yeah and it's a way to monetize it too
2: Sure, because when you know it's kind of like you you push all that down and you don't acknowledge it, you don't you don't embrace it, you don't exercise it. Um, you eventually are going to seek out ways to do that, probably in private. But but that includes just like you know going and watching a movie, right? Where sex sells through the sex sells through television shows. You know, so this is how they they sort of like they make it taboo, yet they stuff it right in your face, you know. And this is why pornography is free on the internet because they just, they want to, that's another mechanism of control. And um, Reich was very much anti-pornography his entire life. Uh, he, he thought that it was detrimental, which it obviously is. So he was, he was sort of um kind of woke to that kind of stuff before it became a thing in the sort of internet age here, but he, he knew that, that, you know, sex for the sake of sex, sex for the sake of just ejaculation, right? Sex for the sake of just pleasure was problematic. And not only that, but then watching people do it was also problematic because of the way that it would shift the gray matter in your brain. And so, um, yeah, sorry, I kind of don't lost my train sorry. of thought there. But, but no, it's okay.
0: Oh, so if, it, if it's for something other than procreation, what is it for? An expression of love or an exchange of energy? How does he categorize that?
2: For him, it was more of an energetic release. Like it was just a, a natural sort of um, buildup that needed to be expressed. Right. And so he, he tied this, you know, mostly to kind of your emotional state at any given moment. And the more emotion that you couldn't express, the more that it built up inside of you. And and what this energy really was, was the the creative energy that you would call now, you know, like being connected to source and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of that that godly type of creative force that we all have inside of us. When that wasn't able to be expressed through things like um, speaking or touch or uh, whatever else, I guess, however the ways that, you know, that you could express that, Emotionally speaking, that it would get pent up and you would not be able to really function properly. That it would lead to neuroses of all sorts, and which is what we would call mental health these mm-hmm. days. You know, just mental sure. health disorders and whatnot. So I don't know if I answered the question, but
0: yeah, definitely. So what, and then after sort of collecting this information on Wilhelm Reich for uh, I don't know how long year over years, I would imagine, how did that turn into? the inspiration to make a, make a script out of it to want to tell that story.
2: Yeah. I think I'm, I'm more in the camp of like these days of we need to tell better stories, not only about, you know, kind of culture and other people. We need to tell better stories about ourselves to ourselves. And when I really dug into Reich's work, it became apparent that not only was this guy fascinating on the surface But he had not done the work himself on himself. And so he was the analyst who didn't use his analysis, his analytical skills to really create any sort of self-awareness about him and and his life and what he went through. And so when I dug into his backstory, you know, kind of as a as a young person, as an adolescent, um, it became really clear why this guy was interested in what he was interested in. And I'll I'll just I'll talk briefly about that if you don't mind. Yeah, please do. He he was 12 years old when he caught his mother having sex with their live-in tutor. So she Mm -hmm. was cheating on his father, Mm -hmm. and he didn't just catch him once. He watched them have sex. He wrote in his diaries and journals about this. He would watch his mother have sex many nights with this this young, you know, kind of like strapping tutor that they had, and he got so I think bothered by it on some level that he eventually told his father about it. And then he watched his father beat his mother repeatedly for this. And then she ultimately committed suicide. Wow. And so he was 12 years old when all this happened. And a few years later, his dad's also dead from tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. So by before the age of 16, he's he's watched his mom commit suicide. His dad dies of, a, of an illness and then he's on his own with his brother. And so Seeing that and then seeing that, like, not only did his mom commit suicide, but what led to that, his sort of, you know, observation of the sexual act that she was performing with this, you know, not her husband, right, not mm-hmm. his father. yeah And then him telling his father and then just that cascade of events, right, that domino effect that that has in his life for a 12 year old boy, you know, who then goes on to become what we just called the Einstein of or the orgasm it made sense that there was such like a repressed sort of sexual trauma that came from that event that I think he was constantly trying to work out for the rest of his life, but was very sort of infamous for never talking about his parents to anybody. And so when you become a psychotherapist or a psychoanalyst in the 1920s, and you're trying to help people through their own childhood traumas by talking about them, And then, you know, he obviously moved into more of what we would call like, uh, you know, touch therapy, massage therapy. He wouldn't call it massage, but, you know, just kind of observing posture and and musculature and how it moved and how it held tension and then working it out. Um, Just doing all that for patients, but never doing it for yourself became such just an interesting thing in the subtext of his story. Right. And how, you know, losing his mother and he was married five different times. And I think what he's doing is, you know, he's trying to find his mother and every woman that he connects with throughout the rest of his life. And his dad dies early. They did not have a good relationship after that, you know, obviously. Uh, but then, you know, his relationship with Freud, he struck up a relationship later when he came to America in the 1940s with Albert Einstein. And I think he was constantly looking for these fatherly figures for approval. Right. Mm-hmm. He wanted not just Freud's friendship and respect. He wanted... father figure he wanted his approval right and so you know they had a falling out later in life and uh and it it struck him in the same way that that you would that it would like losing your actual father you know it kind of sort of set him back a little bit too and so just seeing these different things and how they played out in his life and then looking at the actual work that he was doing and and how important i think it is um it just made sense that like this this guy needed a proper sort of representation of his life and his work that was emotionally resonant, you know, because the work speaks for itself. It's interesting on the surface to just dig into it. You you put a cloudbuster in a movie trailer and people might get interested in that, you know, Mm. but, but there's no narrative to that. And so finding the narrative to, you know, who he was as a man and, and what really informed his own character in his entire life was kind of something I just, I stumbled into during the research and then, I sort of sat down one night and I was like, you know what? I having a conversation with a friend of mine and Reich just sort of came up organically in the conversation. And I sort of half fibbed. I was like, oh yeah, I have a, I have a story about Reich, you know, kind of like half written. And I had, what I did is I had an outline half written. I didn't Mm -hmm. have like a script, Mm -hmm. but I had been thinking about it for a while and then just like using that conversation as a jumping off point to sort of to like to actually sit down and write the rest of the story was was how that came about and but yeah it it was years of listening to people talk about Reich. I didn't I wasn't really taking notes or anything I didn't really start to read his actual work until probably a month or two before I started writing the screenplay you know it it was and and as you know if you know my sort of work ethic and research process I, I was deep into it for a long time you know just like all day all night reading 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 and then writing and so like, once I, I made it through a few books and got the outline done, that's, that's, the script was done pretty quickly, you know, p- probably two or three weeks that I, that I wrote it in. But um, it was a whirlwind, man. It was like February, March, April of last year was just, you know, constant, just plugging away, man, just trying to, uh, to finish that story so that I I, you know, kind of had something to propel me into the next phase of my life, really. It's kind of, selfishly what I was doing too. So what
3: what I find so fascinating about him is that we're talking about two people Freud and Reich who experience mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of repression
1: mm-hmm. in
3: their own personal lives and they both have issues with feminine energy with women. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you're talking about someone who Yes, he was looking for a father figure, absolutely. But I think both of them had such intrinsic issues with their mothers Mm -hmm. that the fact that he watched his mother have sexual intercourse says really a lot more about his desire to understand the feminine and control the feminine. And by revealing what she did to... The father, yes, it was trying to create some relationship with his father and align himself with his father, but it, I think there was also a curiosity about what he was seeing and perhaps some degree of sexual arousal there mm-hmm. f- by what he was seeing. So, both of them have I mean, it's so easy to distill it down and say they have mommy issues, but I <laughs> and I think most men to some degree have issues with. Feminine energy, mother energy. So I think that is a really interesting kind of uh, maybe a structural place to delve into in this story. I don't know how deeply you went into that in your script.
2: Uh, Well, you know, page space is limited, but it is it is touched on in there just, you know, not necessarily... Uh, in the in the way and the context that you were just talking about it but mm-hmm. it's very obvious that he has what we'll call mommy issues mm-hmm. and and that 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 event just you know just uh, it, and it to be honest it did arouse him it did create this this curiosity in him about sex and sexuality and I from what I gathered from what I said about it when he told his father about it he he was very nonchalant you know like he he thought that his father would also be interested and mm-hmm. to know this, because he was interested, and they thought it was a you know supposed to be some sort of bonding sort of exercise, and it, of course it turned out to not be that. But and what I think attracted me to that that part of the story too was my own issues with my mother, you know. Which, a, a, as you just said, you know, and Chris, I don't know about you, but you know, uh, men do have issues with their mothers, sure. it, it is especially when your when your mothers are. And I, I don't mean to throw you know sort of shade on my mom here, but but it was a long time of, of emotional unavailability
3: mm-hmm.
2: that I, I couldn't connect. Even when I wanted to connect, it wasn't there. There was a block, right? And it's only really until here recently that, that I can start to feel that block sort of dissolve a little bit. You know, the, the more sort of conscious and aware I become on what my mom has struggled with. You know mm-hmm. observing her as a woman not as my mother but as right. as a woman who has her own struggles mm-hmm. and, and has had her own struggles for a long time and then knowing how to work with that knowing how to talk to her about those things because i think one of the great the great joys of my life has been learning about my parents like i said as as a man and as a woman right who have their own lives their own issues and and trying to figure out how to make those relationships better. And that's something that Reich obviously did not do and could not do because his parents were not around. But it that was part of the story that really hit me personally and why I thought, you know, I, I should write something about this because when when you watch like a biography film about somebody um it's hard to find resonance, I think, as the writer of something like that, because you feel like you're just literally documenting somebody's life from point A to point B. And it's hard to find the sort of emotional entry point where you, the writer, identify with something about this you know, famous person or this well-known person or whoever. And so when I found that, that's what really made me interested in trying to tell the story was that, oh, there's a lot here that that actually – resonates with me because of where I'm at in my own life with my parents or my, you know, my own sort of sexual energetic buildups and, you know, things like that. So I would agree hundred percent with that. There's a lot of, um, at least I have had a lot of problem with women in my life for that same reason. And it wasn't until I started to prepare the relationship with my own mother that I noticed my relationships with, with, with women outside of that have gradually improved. So I, there, you know, I think there's probably a there there, right?
3: Mhm. Well, and part of that feminine energy is inside of you. Hmm. So your mother is not separate from you there is a balancing, there's this, this uh, yin and yang energy that exists in all of us. And I think understanding that is a very complicated thing, especially when you're talking about a 12 year old boy, seeing something like that, that can be very traumatic because it makes them question their sexuality and their perspective of the world. So I think it's interesting that this was kind of the through line or maybe the, the seed of his work was starting with the orgasm because he's trying to understand sexual energy and then how that manifests in his relationships where it seems like they're problematic and he's having issues, you know, maybe reconciling his own sexual energy with another person Mm -hmm. Uh, so, what was the next step for him after this work that he did with with the orgasm?
2: Well, he took that into biology and cancer research, and which is funny because he 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 went to medical school, so he's he's a doctor. He's he's got the the fancy title, you know. He's he's a doctor of medicine, and and so once he sort of uh, he starts to experiment with the patients physically. Mm-hmm. which is what leads to the fallout with Freud, because Freudian analysis, as you know, is really just talk therapy, right? And, and Reich had noticed that, you know, the posture and the musculature um, of certain patients had had tells in them. Like he he could just tell that there was something, you know, pent up in their jaw or pent up in their shoulder or whatever. And he just went to work on them physically, you know, massaging them in, in some form or another. And so he becomes really interested in the body. and this is what leads him to the sort of biological and cancer research part of his life because he transitions from the orgasm to this idea of character armor, right? Where you have this, uh, like literal like energetic shield that's built up over your muscles that you need to dissolve before you can really be, you know, sort of free flowing again. And he starts to get really interested in how this can affect things, you know, kind of at the cellular level. And, and so he starts dabbling in, Um, cancer research because he's noticing that there are some patients who are coming in with tumors.
3: Mm. And
2: when he starts to go to work on them, the size of the tumors goes down. Mm. And so he starts to do more experiments with this. And this is um, he's having success, you know, kind of um, taking what he calls bions, which are sort of like little amoeba like creatures that he, he finds in plant matter. Because he he starts to experiment with a bunch of different things, and it's too much to get into right now in terms of all the details. But I'm trying to just bridge sort of like the analysis to the more sort of orgone energy phase of his life, and it's this biological phase where he he just naturally gets interested in in life forms and how life forms are generated, and he gets into this weird sort of phase where he's experimenting with uh, with these little amoeba like creatures, and he notices that they are sort of spontaneously generating and they're doing it in all kinds of different atmospheres, right? All kinds of different environments. And it's sterile, non-sterile. And so he starts to wonder like, you know, is this some, is there some sort of like energetic component that is allowing these things to sort of spontaneously regenerate? And turns out that's what he calls orgone. And so.
3: Now, did he write about this?
2: Yeah, there is a ton of uh, a ton of stuff out there about this from this time period. Um, let me just throw out some titles if, in case the um, the listeners are of are interested. And so we're talking about. Let's see, let's see. Um, I have a list here. Then I'm trying to figure out what period I'm talking about here. So, you know, character analysis. We've talked about that. Um,
3: and we can also put these in the episode notes. That would be wonderful. Sure. Yeah, us, you can like just a send reading this. list. Yeah, yeah. That would be wonderful. Yeah, l- let me just
2: kind of skip over what the titles are because I can't, for some reason, I can't find my list of all the work. I just have to yeah, select just, titles here mentioned.
0: Just send it to me later.
2: Okay. Yeah. Either way, either way. He does write about this. Um, in fact, there's a lot of uh, um, stuff about uh, orgone and uh, the biology stuff in the in a book called ether god and devil which is where i took the title of the screenplay from
3: ether god and devil mm-hmm. interesting
2: yeah. um one of my favorite books because it, it really gets into the idea of orgone as a cosmic sort of energy mm-hmm. which is where he his work becomes really controversial so um maybe we could like reset to where we were since we have decided to go longer here um absolutely and just so i can get back on track if, that, sure. if that's okay of course Okay. So what do, what do you want me to pick up at?
3: I would love for you to pick up at the point where you started to talk about orgone energy and, and mm-hmm. shifting over from the biology. Uh, sh- he shifted to biology and cancer research. What was the first thing that you said there that he discovered something in plant life?
2: Yeah. So he, this was about the, this is the early 1930s. And this was uh, post, um, he went to oslo norway Mm -hmm. and really started to dig into biology there Mm -hmm. and so he conducted this series of experiments over the case of a few years called the bion experiments okay and a bion to him was a sort of like um if you, you do you know what like t bacilli are sort of like a it's a type of bacteria that's usually found in cancerous tissue. Mm-hmm. And so he started to, to, um, experiment with this stuff. And what he noticed was that in, he, he, he was examining protozoa. All right. And mm-hmm. he, he started to grow these, uh, cultured sort of, um, vesicles, he called them in different environments, uh, uh sand and, uh, grass. And he even grew some in like animal tissue, um, which was really interesting. And so what he did was he watched these things sort of grow in different environments, including in an environment that had dead tissue. And so he used animal tissue and this is where he also used some of the cancer cells that I was mm-hmm. just talking about. Mm-hmm. And so he watched these, these protozoa, right. That he watched them sort of um, spontaneously regenerate. So that, so they would, he would place the protozoa in there and they would, just naturally spontaneously regenerate There's a process called abiogenesis as well, which is mm-hmm. really difficult to explain. And I can maybe explain that in a minute, but um, what he did was he, he watched these things grow and at some specific moment when they actually like kind of right before they would go from um, sort of like a, a, for lack of a better term, we'll call it like a, something that's, that's dead mm. to something that's alive again so right so this is the spontaneous regeneration there was a spark of blue light
3: that hmm.
2: he observed in every single bion that he called it in every single material that it grew in and so he 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 watched this through microscopes and then he also filmed it he was the first maybe the first don't quote me on that maybe the first person to ever use what we would call time-lapse cinematography Wow, He he hired, a, and it wasn't really him, but it was, he hired a woman who was a very well-known uh, kind of photojournalist in Norway, and he brought her into the lab and he asked her, you know, so he had the idea, but he asked her, do you know what time-lapse cinematography is? And if so, can you do it? And she said that she could. And so they were the first people that I could find on record doing this type of cinematography, which I think is a nice sort of like fascinating that's amazing
3: the And who was but, this? Who was the woman?
2: Uh, her name was Carrie Bergrov, B-E-R-G-G-A-R-V. Um, she was a, a very famous, like I said, photo photojournalist in Norway at the time. Um, and I think also was got famous because she was a war photographer, maybe?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, I don't know if she did World War I, she definitely did World War Two. Um, so this would have been before she even did the World War II photography, but she was well-known in Norway before then. I think maybe her, her, her war photography made her more well-known internationally, but Reich had got hip to her because she was part of the crowd that he was running in at the time. And and he recruited her into the lab and she actually became a sort of like pseudo videographer videographer of him for the rest of his life, really, because she would come to, she would come to New York too, and, and do some things with them. But, um, So this was, this was the beginning of what we'll call like the Orgone theory. So he's watching these, what he called bions, um, sort of spontaneously generate and regenerate and watching this, these blue flashes of light, you know, these observable blue flashes of light under a microscope that he pinpointed was the exact sort of like moment between life and death between this, like this dead material And then right before it came back to life and started growing again. Wow. And so, you know, it's, it's like, what is that state? And, and we, like, we might call it like purgatorial state or something like that, but it was altogether different. Like it was literally a state where this thing was not alive and not dead. It was in between these two cycles of life and death. And so there was like, if you think of it, like, just like a pause, Mm -hmm. you know, and then divine spark, this flash of blue light, and then it, all of a sudden, it's alive again. And so he's watching this, you know, at a really small molecular level, it, with these bions, these amoebas, these, uh, you know, protozoa, and he just starts to formulate this theory that, well, this must be a, this must be some type of energy, you know, mm-hmm. like there's there's something going on here that is providing this blue light, this spark, that allows this thing to regenerate itself. What is that? And so he develops this idea of orgone and that's, that's where the term comes from. And he called it orgone because of the, uh, the word orgasm obviously is, is, is in there. And he would, he would connect those dots, you know, sort of as he continued to formulate the theory, but the, the theory of orgone, you know, sort of in general is that, you know, this is a life force energy that, that this is, I think, to think about it in more of a way that we would talk about it is this is the divine spark. This is the, the, the creative sort of spark from God, right? Now he wasn't talking about it in those terms right away, but that's, that's the sort of area that he was operating in was in, and what turned into the, the quest throughout the rest of his life was to, you know, essentially prove the existence of God, but also tie this into the concept of the ether, Sure. well is there any yeah.
0: any place that you'd like to steer anybody who's listening to your work do you have a you still have your sub stack
2: uh i do still have the sub stack in the patreon mm-hmm. um that you could check out and i think it's patreon.com slash libra ohio if you go to the the podcast feed which is still out there you just search libra ohio you can also search old culture because you'll you'll find all those mm-hmm. all those old episodes too in the same feed but there will be links in there to uh, the Patreon and the Substack and the more recent episodes that are still active because people, believe it or not, are still listening to the episodes, which I'm grateful for. And I, I, I still get emails about them and, you know, downloads are still surprisingly good, which mm-hmm. is, as for somebody who's not active, is kind of a, a great thing to see that people are, are still interested in what you've done. You yeah. know? and
0: Excellent shows. Yeah, it's super, helped to inspire me to do a podcast. so. Thank I remember you.
2: that dude, you sent yeah. me a message on Facebook many years ago before you started this show and you mm-hmm. asked me for advice. Yeah. And I was like, who the fuck am I to give you advice? I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and here we but are. But I was grateful that you reached out because it 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 was getting messages like that that showed me that I was doing something that was resonating with you. Yeah. And you thought enough of me to reach out to to you know, pick my brain about whatever you even asked me about. And I don't mm-hmm. even know what I told you, but I I hope I gave you some good advice. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I'm here, right?
2: <laughs> you guys are here. And by the way, I do want to say that too, because I've listened to your show, Chris, when you were doing it by yourself. And mm-hmm. then I think when you added Hunter that there was such a a a dynamic shift in the ether for the better. Like for if, sure. this was not the sort of devil manifestation of it. This was mm-hmm. more just like I I don't know how you guys approach these conversations, but I can tell that that you guys are one, a great couple. Like that I don't know what your relationship is like privately. But I can tell by the dynamic that you guys have together on air, and I hope it's not a persona that you're putting on, but no. it just seems like that you guys have such love and respect for each other. And I think that is a beautiful thing. I don't think you consciously share that. I just think it it just comes out naturally because that's who you guys are. And so that dynamic, when I when I picked up that shift, I realized that like, it's kind of something that I was searching for too, you know, just like someone that I could maybe co-host and co-create with in that sense. I just never found the right dynamic that I would want to explore in that way. And the fact that you that you guys have it at home all yes. the time yeah. is is really beautiful to me. And 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 I think just sharing that on some level with your audience, even if it is through conversations like this, is inspiring. You know, like there's a there's an energetic sort of thing here in what you guys are doing that I think did shift over time for the better and i think your episodes have actually gotten better because of it not that they were bad to begin with chris oh, no 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 i totally agree i'm just saying that like there's another level you know if you talk about film and screenwriting there's a different level of subtext there now mm-hmm. like i get i get that like you guys are are in a relationship and that you guys are happy and 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 it just seeps through into the conversations and you're you're you still maintain curiosity after all these years and you're still interested not just in who you're talking to but in each other mm-hmm which is beautiful because, you know, it's hard to find someone that maintains interest in you for a long time. Absolutely. <laughs> so fingers thank crossed. You. Thank you, know, you know, so
3: will... <laughs> much. And also please send us that list, that reading yes, list, because that list. Are, I know our guests, our future guests, and our listeners would really love to drill further into Reich. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and thank you for that. those kind um, words. He's I've, got an extensive
2: yes. biography, so I, I'll pick out kind of the greatest hits, which yes. still still might be a lengthy list. But he he was a he wrote a lot, and he was a very prolific writer. And um, but I'll I'll pick out the things that sort of maybe best represent each phase of his his work in his life.
3: Okay. Fantastic. All right. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks so I much, I so Ryan. appreciate your kind words. Yes. And we are sending you lots and lots of love and positive energy on your project. And seeing it, I can see it on the screen. Yeah. So know that it is happening.
0: We're already at the premiere.
3: <laughs> Red carpet, baby. <laughs> yeah,
2: well, thank you guys so much. And, you know, Hunter, good luck with your studies, obviously.
3: Thank you. Hey. Hello.
0: What'd
3: you think? I think that we had a very interesting, long, deep conversation with Ryan that I was not <laughs> anticipating. I yeah. honestly walked in not knowing what we were going to talk about. I didn't know the, Wil, the Wilhelm Reich element.
0: Yeah, just in case it, there ends up being any editing snafus, uh, the story was that we weren't going to do the interview. You are on camera now. Sorry. (laughs) I had to yawn. I'm a human.
3: That proved it.
0: That's true. Yes. The internet rumors can cease now. Um, What was I going to say? Oh, it's going to be two hours. Then Hunter turned out having a heavy workload as far as homework is concerned. We're going to knock it down to one hour, which... Ryan didn't know until basically right before our conversation. Poor Ryan. But he's so flexible. He went with it. Whatever we wanted to do, he was right there. And then in probably, I don't know, 10 minutes before the the hour was up, Hunter writes me a little note and says, let's keep going, which is great. I was hoping that you would get captivated by uh, the topic and... A lot to, to dive into as far as Reich is concerned, and
3: I I know very zero about him other than very zero, <laughs> very <laughs> zero, <laughs> uh, except for the the orgone element, which wasn't even necessarily like the the follow up to the orgone stuff I mm-hmm. know about, yeah, uh, but I didn't know about his relationship with. Sigmund Freud. I didn't know anything about his personal history. Mm -hmm. And so I saw layers developing that were going to develop long before we got to like really the meat of the conversation. And I just wanted to kind of go with that because this is the area of study that I'm uh, studying. And so it's fascinating Mm to me. Uh, So yeah, that's why I I took one for the team and just kept going because, you know, homework I have until midnight to finish it and I will do it. <laughs> well, I would like to
0: think that, too, you got wrapped up in the topic. I did. That's okay. what I'm saying. Good. Okay. That's
3: exactly what I'm saying. I Fantastic. totally got wrapped up into it. Cool.
0: Yeah, and I. Uh, that's why I was a little puzzled. But I guess I didn't realize to what extent that you did not know about this subject. So
3: I know the name. I, do, I guess... You know, I heard Wilhelm Reich. I assume he's a Nazi. So <laughs> I knew nothing about wow. him. You racist often? <laughs> I knew nothing about him. So I walked in. Well, I knew that there was some some history with the Nazis of him maybe being shoved out of Europe. And, you know, but I, yeah. I didn't know if he was part of Paperclip sure. or what his whole deal was. No, I still am curious about... Tesla, I feel like there's some overlap there because they both seem to be very uh, similar characters.
0: yeah, kind of in the same um, level of notoriety or infamy. Um, Tesla for some reason seems to have gotten a little bit more airplay, but uh, Reich I think had as equal if not more uh, fantastic discoveries that he, came across in his life and we didn't even did he we get into the ufos he did there for a second didn't he the saucers flying saucers that used to come while they were cloud busting
3: dipped dipped very lightly into it but didn't really go into any detail
0: well i encourage you to go to libra ohio and whatever podcasting uh app that you listen to or go to the website and listen to the episode where he's reading a part of the script. I think he's reading the first five pages or something just to give you a taste. And it's going to be amazing. It is amazing in the future already. And I can't wait to see it for the second and third time.
3: Yeah, I I see it. Uh, f- being a film that should be made, you know, there's enough, they've exhausted the Tesla story. There's been enough documentaries and films been made about Tesla that this would be a great uh, kind of a, a adjunct to science and uh, you know, people going into to the field of science and, and really as Ryan said, like, having a theory and then taking that theory to its farthest conclusion that they can reach. And I think that that's something that that I think is lost right now in science and a lot of people aren't doing because they lack funding, uh, maybe lack attention span. There could be lots of reasons why that doesn't happen. So uh, yeah, that's why, you know, in that second hour we talked, we, we kind of dipped into the world of how do you fund something like this, a production of this scale. And I think if he went into like a European market, it would be quite easy for him to get the money.
0: Perhaps. I don't know how you go about doing such things. Um, It's
3: easy. You write a proposal. You have good lawyers.
0: It sounds like he's on the way uh, as far as that's concerned.
3: Yeah. I think he can do it. Yeah. If if anyone. He's really... focused Yeah, and I love sure.
0: that and he's smart and sharp and he knows what he's doing so at least he as he's we we said before the conversation he's faking it until he makes it he's a good faker so this fucking thing's gonna happen I know it is
3: yeah I think one thing I really like about Ryan that I I have gathered from all of our discussions that we've had with him is that he's not afraid to show his vulnerability yeah. he's not afraid to talk about, you know, the rougher sides of being a human and the the challenges that he's had. And I think that that level of vulnerability comes through in writing. It comes through in an interview, and I think that will serve to help him to get to really engage people and get people on his side.
0: Yeah, I agree. Plus, he's a good stand-up dude, so... Yeah. He's got that going for him. So, yeah. yeah. so uh, Aim your energy towards manifesting this in the future. What were you going to say?
3: I'm just glad he got Please. the fuck out of marketing. I mean, my Definitely. God, what a what a soulless job that is.
0: Absolutely. You know, he's probably infinitely more happy because of it. Obviously, he had time to produce this script. So, more power to him. Yes. Did you want to say something about the second hour?
3: I... Am really glad that we touched upon the uh, the book Ether God and the Devil, and that he talked about the woman who actually helped him do the filming of the uh, time lapses, the bion experiments that he was doing. I have wrote <laughs> it. You have a hard
0: time writing, You're reading your own handwriting because I
3: don't have my that, and You're, I don't have my glasses on. Uh-huh. Um and the bion experiment was the the spark of blue light that he talked about. Um, and her name was Carrie Bergarve. and I just kind of guess. I think he he spelled her last yeah, name he as B E R G G A R V. Um, and she was a Norwegian woman who was a a uh, photographer of. Uh, like a photojournalist who worked on the Second World War, we know for sure. Um, So yeah, he went into the beginning of the orgone energy um, and how that developed for him, how he named it. Uh, But these blue flashes of light, how he describes them, how Ryan describes them, is that it's the stasis, the point between life and death, Um, We talked about orgone accumulators. That was another thing. He was very fascinated by the fact that William Burroughs had a orgone accumulator in his backyard in a shed that you mentioned.
0: Five minutes away from here. Um, And he discusses his own uh, tower busting experiences. Yeah. Where? Well, you'll just have to listen to find out.
3: Which I love. I love that he's, again, he's a renegade. He went out there and did it. Yep. So another shout out to Mitch, Mitch, the Oregon donor (laughs) that we love.
0: Uh, yeah. So yeah, a great episode. Um, thank you Ryan for coming on. And as we mentioned in the last hour, he was partially the inspiration for me starting this podcast in the first place. I was an avid, a culture listener and, uh, Got lots of ideas, took lots of cues from that. So thank you, Ryan. Hopefully we can serve the the circle, complete the circle here. Um,
3: Yeah, I think we're having a different experience because we're doing it together than he talked about. He talked about kind of a masturbatory level of doing a podcast and wanting to create your own art as opposed to listening to other people, you know, talk about their art. And I think, I mean, from my perspective, I think maybe it's because I'm baby new and doing this. I think I have a different outlook. I feel like we are manifesting and we are creating. We are creating conversations. We are creating um, ideas and thoughts in people's minds, hopefully the listeners' minds. Uh, I feel like we're contributing to the world. Um, so for me, this is a form of art, and it's a form of art that I really love, and I really love that I get to do it with my life partner and the person that I uh, feeds my soul and that I enjoy. And so I think that that's the element that maybe Ryan, who by his own admission didn't have, and so I think that's what makes our situation a little bit different because I feel like we're growing together as we do this.
0: Yes, absolutely. And right back at you.
3: Right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I am manifesting more time too. Um, yes. The only lament that I have about um, the my life right now and the way that it's arranged is not having enough time to devote to this podcast not only to that but I feel like I'm researching researchers or I'm researching other people's research mm-hmm. and I would and I'm manifesting I should say trying to keep my language going here I'm manifesting more time to do that research um, myself my own research uh, which I long to do I was looking for I'm we're as you know, because you're probably well you're maybe you're watching it, maybe you're listening, but we're we do a video version of our uh podcast now, and I was researching images to put into the intro or little video clips and run across ran across tons of rabbit holes that I would love to have dived down, but I just did not have the time to do it. I don't have a lot of time to just allow myself to organically fall into rabbit holes, so I'm manifesting that time to do that and then the, then after that, henceforth, turning that research into content that comes from me instead of content that is from other people, uh, which is fascinating and I, I totally enjoy talking to people about their experiences and research and their art and their um, ideas surrounding all of this stuff. I absolutely enjoy it, but I would like to generate some of that myself so I can understand Ryan's... Uh, situation to an extent but yeah i can't think of anybody that i'd rather be doing this with life and this podcast um so i'm the luckiest the
1: luckiest boy in the
3: whole world (laughs) (laughs) and we again we're gonna have danny cats on the show Mm -hmm. and we have to be very cognizant of our words and how we speak and so Maybe omitting I don't have the time and saying I'm finding the time, I have the time, draw again, let's manifest, let's draw that stuff to us.
0: That's what I said, I'm manifesting the time. Yes. I changed it. All right. Yeah. Unless I slipped up, I I could have easily done that. I have lots of habitual um, verbal manifestations unconscious that I, what are you doing?
3: I just looked at the viewers and I said he does. <laughs> but you he's... do too. We all do. No, I don't.
0: <laughs> you have the you have denial on your side.
3: <laughs> delusion,
0: denial, <and> delusion. <laughs> They have a, a hair salon <laughs> down on Fifth Street, <laughs> don't they? Okay. We should go. You have I studying have so to, do. Much shit to do. I tonight. have podcasts to edit. Yes. Um, thank you all so very much for listening. Yeah. Much love to you. And, and watching. And watching. Um, please send us your feedback, your guest ideas, your
3: casserole recipes,
0: your praise, your blame to uh, the melt podcast at protonmail.com or
3: hunter hyphen muse at protonmail.com and please, but don't send me your blame it's yeah. not my fault okay i was own just it. joking anyway own it own our, your reality our,
0: our <laughs> audience is not a, a bunch of blamers i can sense no. it i can feel it
3: no. they're good peoples um we love them
0: please share please share this stuff spread it around get it out there it's going to Mean more coming from you than from us because people trust you, people love you, and people like uh, hearing what you're interested in. So, any help that you can give in that area would be greatly appreciated. So, thank you all very much for listening. Much love, and there's incredible stuff coming down the pipe, and I'm very excited to uh, to give it to you to pass it along. So, until next time, yay, ta-ta,
3: meow.
0: To hear the full-length version of this episode, get access to exclusive and early episodes, and participate in our monthly Zoom meetups for as little as $3 per month, just click the Patreon link in the episode notes or visit patreon.com slash themeltpodcast. Contributing financially will help to make this podcast my full-time gig that I can devote more time to and allow me to create more content. Other ways of contributing would be giving us a favorable review or rating wherever you get your podcasts, subscribing to us on YouTube, spreading the word wherever you and your tribe congregate, or just by sending us your positive thoughts and intentions. In a quantumly intertwined and holographic multiverse, these also go a long way. Thank you.